Uh, I want to ask a favor of you as we get started this morning. I had forgotten that this was our week to be prayed for by uh, other churches in town. That, that always is a, a wonderfully good thing. Um, but I, I want to ask you to, uh, to let's piggyback on that for just a moment. Um, before we get started, before we open the word, I want to ask you to pray for me and for yourselves, if you could or would do that, okay? This is probably the hardest message in the series that I have done. Okay, let's put the next slide up just so we kind of know where we're at in this. We're working our way through the book of the Revelation. It's broken down into four visions. We are in the third vision at the coming king and the end of evil. That's where we're going to find ourselves today and next week. This, this has been the hardest message of the series by far to put together. And I have had more intense spiritual attack and spiritual warfare this past week than I have had in I can't remember how long. I don't think that's by coincidence, okay? We're at the point in the story where the enemy's making one last final ditch effort to sabotage the plan of God. So should it surprise me that attack comes? No, it doesn't surprise me. But it was a tough week. Remember, I have told you so many times uh, over I don't know how long, the little motto, uh, life is hard, God is good, don't quit, we win. I'll be honest with you, I battled this week with this one. Life is hard, God is good, this sucks, I quit. <laughs> but I'm here. <laughs> and so, no, 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 I don't, I don't do that for that reason. I just want you to know that attack is not something that should surprise us. Okay? And, and it's something I don't think we should just feel terrible about. It comes with the territory. The issue is, are you going to quit? Or are you not going to quit? And so to think about quitting doesn't really matter. You've had any thoughts of quitting in the past, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes? <laughs> it, it comes with the territory, folks. Don't quit. I could stop right now and we'd be good for the day, huh? Um, part of why this message is so, so difficult, was so difficult to put together, um, from chapters 19, verse probably 11 to the uh, end of chapter 20, uh, there's so much in there. There's so much overlap. There's so many things happening simultaneously. There's no clear breaking point. Um, I've been talking to you about how the book of the Revelation is not this timeline sequence. It's, it's more like a painting. And John in this vision is, is putting the finishing touches on a lot of different areas of the painting. And it's hard to track sometimes with, well, he's over here for a minute. And now he's over there. And then he's working here. And he's up here. And he's over there. That's kind of where we're at in this story at this point in time. There's so many different options for what this all means. And add to that, there's so much symbolic language. And so um, I've, I've worked really hard this week to keep this as, as simple as I can and to bring great clarity to what I believe the Word of God wants to say to us this morning. But I'd like to pause for just one minute and ask you to pray. Um, pray that I could speak with that clarity and keep it simple. Uh, but pray for yourselves, because it's, it's one thing to deliver, it's another thing to receive. And I just don't want there to be a breakdown on either end of that. So if you'll just take a quick minute and pray for me, and then lift yourself up as well. God, give me ears to hear what, the, not what Kent, but what the Spirit wants to say to me today. Can you do that? Will you do that? Yes. So let's do that, all right? Lord, thanks, thanks for hearing our prayers, and uh, thanks for being faithful in answering our prayers. In Jesus' name, okay, amen. So as I said, we're, um, we're in the middle of this third vision, and uh, there's a real shift in tone here. There's a, a shift in theme and subject matter. I, I even thought of retitling the series from here on out, Game Over, and the winning is just beginning. Because we have turned a corner in this thing. But we're going to see today the enemy makes a couple of, of attempts to crash the party. 
at the last minute, okay? We'll, we'll kind of look at, at that. Last week, if you weren't here, this is what we looked at. Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. We looked at the most awesome, amazing, awe-inspiring picture and description of the return of the king that you'll find in all of the Bible. You know, actually, return of the king probably doesn't say it. It's the return of the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who is indeed coming again. Amen? If you weren't here last week, please go online or order a CD. Get a copy of of the message. So I just want to dig in this morning, um, chapters 19, verse 17, through verse 10 of chapter 20. And so without further ado, uh, Tom Ames is going to be our reader today. So Tom, if you'd come on up here, as we do every, every week, if you'd stand, please, to honor the Word of God as we listen to what it wants to say to us. And Tom, thanks for helping us. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the sign in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them, given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out, of, <clears throat> excuse me, come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they will come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. All right, you can have a seat. Okay, let's, uh, let's kind of work our way through this this morning, all right? And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. We're not sure who this angel is, but he's not literally standing in the sun. If he were, he'd be crying out in a loud voice, Ouch, this is hot! So it doesn't mean he's literally standing in the sun. It's more like the, the sun is the backlight, For the purpose, for the reason of everyone being able to see him and hear what he is saying. He is announcing an invitation to the great supper 
of God. Now, just so there's no confusion, if you were here last week, uh, there was another supper invitation that was given out, but it's 180 degrees from this one. Last week's was found in Revelation 19.9, where it says this, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is one in 19.9 for believers. It's the bride of Christ and the bridegroom. The, the commencing of the culmination of eternal life together forever. Hallelujah. That one's for us. That is a blessed supper. This other invitation is for the birds. Literally. For the birds. Okay? This angel standing in the sun says to all the birds, come, assemble for the great supper of God that you can eat the flesh of kings, commanders, mighty men, horses, all men, free, slaves, small, and great. You see what's on the menu? It's the flesh of all of the people, all of mankind who have aligned themselves with Antichrist, with the beast, with the false prophet. This very thing was prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. Listen, this is not a PowerPoint slide, but listen to the parallel words written thousands of years before this is going to happen. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of princes, the princes of the earth, as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you're glutted and drink blood until you're drunk for my sacrifice, which I've sacrificed for you, declares the Lord. Some people read this kind of stuff and they say, man, that is just way too bloodthirsty. That's not the God I know. That's not the God who revealed himself. That doesn't sound like God. Where's, where's the mercy and grace of God in this thing? Well, we've hit the point in the story where the mercy of God, the grace of God, revealed to mankind, demonstrated to mankind through the Lord Jesus Christ, coming and giving of his very life for our sins. It's gone. It's over. Even through all of the trumpets and the bowls and everything else that we've looked at, there's been a spot in this whole story where God did those things, hopefully for the purpose that mankind would repent and turn and seek him and come and experience his mercy and grace. We're at the point where it doesn't work that way anymore. I've shared this example oftentimes before. God's mercy and grace is like the law of aerodynamics, okay? Gravity always applies, right? Dan, you're a pilot. Gravity never goes away. We just need to supersede it with the law of aerodynamics. You get enough speed and you get these wings aimed the certain way, and this will be really primitive in terms of what I'm saying. But as long as you supersede the law of gravity with aerodynamics, a plane can fly. Does gravity go away? Is gravity negated? It's never negated. Folks, we're at the point of the story where for the rebellious part of mankind that have aligned themselves with the beast, God's mercy and grace is over. Finished. Done. And so this great assembly for this feast is what God is going to do to those who have said no to his grace and mercy being applied to their lives. This higher law has stopped for them. And God is the one, because he's God, who can determine the punishment that appropriately fits the crime. Is that his prerogative or is it not? It absolutely is. Okay, let's keep reading. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. You talk about an unfair fight. We read last week that this one who sat on the horse is the one who has this sharp sword in his mouth. And with the word of his mouth, he slays his enemies. He smites the nations. 
Second Thessalonians 2.8 talked about him slaying the Antichrist with the mere breath of his mouth. This is not going to be a fair fight. The enemy thinks it is, and that's why he continues to persist in this battle. And the army really is just spectators watching what Jesus himself is going to do to his enemies. There's no real description of this war or this battle given, probably because it's not necessary and it's really one-sided. There's a lot of commentators and excuse me, and scholars who think that this war in verse 19 is just a reiteration of that great day of God the Almighty that we've uh, seen back a little earlier. Uh, chapter 16 talked about it. Um, maybe you've heard of that one. Let me, let me refresh your memory in case you haven't. Revelation 16 verses 14 and 16 say, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Armageddon. Okay? There's a lot of scholars who think because the language is so similar that chapter 19 just refers back to chapter 16. That's kind of up to you to decide. And it gets even a little more confusing here in just a minute. Not necessarily the good news, but that's kind of how this thing works. Let's go back to the war, though, for a minute. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. We learn from chapter 13 that the beast was the personification of government, secular powers coming against the kingdom of God, coming against the church, coming against believers. And the false prophet was false religion in cahoots with government to deceive and persuade people to follow the Antichrist. Well, they're going to get theirs, aren't they? little Bible trivia for you. If anyone ever asks you, who are going to be the first three permanent residents of hell? It's pretty clear. You got to go ahead a chapter, but verse 10 says this, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the first three, first three in line, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, next week, We're going to look at um, where everybody's going, where everybody's going to spend eternity, and a brief look at why and what that's going to be like. Bad news for them, great news for you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. There's one important point I want to make, a little off point, but it's an important point today, and that is this. When the Bible talks about the lake of fire, it's not the same thing as Hades. The lake of fire in Scripture is referred to either as hell or as Gehenna. Hades is a very, very different thing. Hades is the place where the dead go, the departed spirits of those who are not saved go, It's kind of like a holding place until the final judgment happens in chapter 20, starting at verse number 11. You can go on your own and read Luke chapter 16. There's a great story there about these two people who have died. And they're in this kind of holding place, one in paradise, the good place, and and the other one in Hades. And how you'll see there, there uh, there is awareness. These people still are alive in terms of their spirit man. Their bodies may have died, but their spirits will never die. It goes on, it lives, it has feeling, it has senses, it has awareness, okay? But just so you know, hell is the final destination for the wicked. Hades is the place where they're kind of in limbo waiting for what's going to be happening here. Okay, next slide. Those three were thrown in the lake of fire. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So, these then who, who die, who are killed with the sword, they're going to go to Hades. Their spirits will, awaiting that final judgment. But the birds will feast. They'll gorge themselves on their bodies. What a grim, gruesome, horrible picture. Never God's first intent or first choice for anyone. It's a, it's a matter of their willful, obstinate disobedience and rebellion that gives God no other choice but to destroy them. Okay, now for the hard part. (laughs) 
the first two-thirds of chapter 20 talks about Satan's final doom and destruction in two stages. And then it talks about the thousand year, the the millennial kingdom reign of Jesus. Uh, These verses in chapter 20, it's the only place that the, the idea, the concept of the millennium is even mentioned in scripture, okay? And the language is really brief and it's, it's cryptic. And, and because of that, it's led to three very, very divergent and different points of view about this thousand years, okay? So I'm going to put on my teacher's hat for a moment and just kind of run you through the three options. And if you want to take notes on the back of your bullet, and there's a place to uh, write a couple highlights if you want to, it lists for you the three main views. I'm going to go through those quickly here with you. The first view is a view of amillennialism, which means People who are amillennialists do not believe in a literal thousand-year earthly reign. They believe that all the language there is symbolic, it's figurative, that uh, the second coming of Jesus is followed immediately by the resurrection of all of the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous. And uh, for some amillennialists, resurrection is a spiritual issue, not a literal, bodily, physical resurrection. That's what an amillennialist believes. They also think, think that any Old Testament prophecy that speaks of an earthly reign of the Messiah is not to be taken literally. They think it's either been fulfilled through the church age and the church is symbolic for this messianic reign. Or in some cases, they think that, well, you know, once the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem come, then that'll happen. But they take the millennium as just all 100% figurative language. Now... If you're an amillennialist, I mean no offense by this, but I think that amillennialists take something that that they can't understand. Why would a thousand years be necessary? What in the world would it accomplish? And so because they can't answer that question, assume that it's all figurative and all symbolic. The second view is called post-millennialism. And those folks believe that Jesus is coming back at the end of the thousand years. Not at the beginning, but at the end of the thousand years or a really long time. Remember how 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day? Well, they think that that applies here. And it's like you can't pin it down to a thousand years. It's just a long period of time. The church age from when Jesus died on the, came to earth, died on the cross, and then the church was formed until he comes again, that that's what this thousand years really is referring to. Um, they see the kingdom is already here and already a very present reality. I absolutely believe that. But you see, what post-millennialists do, I think, is they take one side of the story and try to eliminate the, the both-and tension that I think we see in the scripture and in the world today. And so they they have a hard time dealing with both sides of the coin. And so they they seem to focus more on the the positive things that they see, which they think proves their point that he's not coming until after, not before. Okay? So they see the kingdom is already here as a present earthly reality. I believe that. Jesus said that. So... That's true. Uh, They think the kingdom is not a physical domain that Jesus reigns over, but rather it's spiritual and specifically it's in the heart. See, I think Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God being in our hearts and that it starts inside and works its way way out. But I don't think he excluded it to being both and. Uh, The kingdom will not be a sudden futuristic event. They think it's been progressing gradually and will continue to do so. Um, let's continue. All the nations will be converted prior to Christ's return. Now, by all the nations, I want to, give the, I want to be clear here. They don't mean 100% of all the people, but they mean that uh, a major portion of all nations um, will come to Jesus as a result of, in the end, Satan being bound and not being able to deceive. The Holy Spirit's going to bring world revival. World peace will come as people submit to Christ's rule in their heart and that racial, ethnic, social conflicts will end, like Isaiah eleven six says. In, bottom line, in a nutshell, Christ's return is the culmination, not the start of these changes. Okay? Now, I absolutely believe the Bible says very clearly that in the last days, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. No question. It's very clear that it says that. We know from Matthew 28, 
the last things Jesus said, and from Acts 1.8, that the Holy Spirit is a powerful force on earth today, especially in believers, right? We're not just discounting that. However, I think that to, to view the kingdom coming as something that progresses and at the end Jesus will come again misses a lot of things that the scripture says. The scripture, folks, talks about the outpouring of the Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, especially in the latter days. No argument. But they don't want to deal with the other things that the scripture says like this. Paul, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, realized this, in the last days, difficult times might come, will come. And then it describes what men are going to be like. And folks, that is such a description of what we see in the world today, is it not? It is. Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, at that time, and he's talking about the end time, at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love, agape love, will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. There's no doubt that that the Spirit is being poured out in the end times. But it's equally obvious to me that the Spirit of Antichrist and all the work of the devil is equally operating in the days in which we live. Don't you see that all around you? So what we've got going here, I think, is kind of a a both and. We've got... We've got the kingdom of God advancing and we've got the kingdom of darkness fighting back. And things are getting brighter on the one hand and yet darker on the other hand at the same time. I think we live in a tension here. The third view is the one that I hold. Again, I'm not saying I'm absolutely right, but I wanted to, as we go through this whole series, tell you what I think as I try and lay out the other options as well. The other option is premillennialism. And that means Jesus returns at the start of a literal thousand-year earthly reign. His reign will be uh, dramatically inaugurated by his second coming. Things will get worse, not better, prior to his return. Again, that tension of the Spirit being poured out, revival, all those great things, signs and wonders, the move of God, powerfully amazing, and yet not void of all the work of the enemy going on simultaneously. Uh, that the great tribulation will precede the millennium, that both resurrections will be physical. There there will be bodily resurrections of the righteous and the unrighteous, and that Jesus will fully restore the rule and kingdom of God. One other point that's really important in this, it's the little asterisk at the bottom. Israel is a key focus of the millennial kingdom, and I'll talk about that here in, uh, in just a minute. Why would, why would Jesus need this thousand years, literally, to rule on this earth, to reign on this earth, to reinstitute the kingdom of God? Why wouldn't he just go poof and change it all? Part of the reason, I think, is because when he comes again at this time, because, you know, the, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem is coming here. You know that, don't you? We're not going there. It's coming here. And I personally think that what Jesus said in Revelation chapter, I think, yeah. Did I miss a verse or did I not put it as a... Oh, it's not a PowerPoint slide. I'm sorry. We'll get to that one in a minute. Revelation 21.5 says, And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus did not say, I'm making all new things. I'm making all things new. And I personally think that this thousand years is going to be a time when rather than coming and just going poof, making it all different, he comes back to this earth and he fixes the mess that mankind has made on this earth over the thousands and thousands of years of sin and wickedness and rebellion against him. Could he fix it like that? Absolutely, but that's really not the point, okay? It might take a thousand years for him to accomplish fixing the mess that mankind has made. Rome wasn't built in a day. Kind of applies here in terms of that kind of thinking. I think it falls clearly in line with what 1 Corinthians 15 verses 24 through 26 speaks of. It talks about the end coming. When Jesus hands over the kingdom to to his God and Father... 
when he's abolished all rule and all authority and power, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The scripture seems to speak of this progressive nature of the kingdom being reinstituted and all the problems of sin and wickedness and disease and everything else being undone in this thousand years. Dispensationalists, people that believe the Bible is clearly uh, divided into different time periods, people who believe that who are also pre-millennialists, Believe Most of them believe that the church is gone. It's already raptured out of here by now. And they believe that uh, God's relationship with Israel is the primary focus. I am not a dispensationalist. I'm not a pre-tribulationist. But I believe that also. I believe that one of the key things Jesus is going to do when he comes again is deal with Israel. Because his covenant with them is everlasting. It's a permanent covenant. Covenant, And they have been not walking in that covenant relationship with him, have they? Most of them rejected Messiah when he came the first time. I believe that when he comes again, they're going to be the issue of primary issue of restoration. All the promised land is going to be restored. Well, I thought they already had their land back. Go look at a map sometime of what God promised them and what they got now. It's going to be a progressive restoration of the land, the promised land. I believe that uh, Jesus, it says, is going to sit on the throne of David. They will acknowledge him indeed as the Messiah. The temple is going to be rebuilt, sacrifice, rituals, priests, all reinstituted. But I believe that in doing that, there is going to be a revelation among the Jews that this is the Messiah. This is the one we missed at the first. It's him. I don't think that's just going to be a poof revelation. I think there's a progressive nature to that. And then any other Old Testament prophecies, promises to Israel are going to be dealt with during this time. Um, Final point, premillennialists see the events of chapters 19 and 20 as literally happening and not being symbolic. And I believe that. Now, on your own, you might want to jot a note Note to self, I need to go read Ezekiel chapters 38 through 48. At least read Ezekiel 38 through 40. Because you'll see there uh, this great war we're looking at described, Israel's uh, restoration. And it just, Ezekiel 38 through 48 so fits language, topic, everything with what we're looking at here in this point of the story, which is another one of the reasons why I really think God's heart is in this millennial kingdom to bring restoration to his chosen people. Okay, then let's keep reading. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Folks, I got to tell you something. Remember the, the, power, the power structure we've talked about? God overall, above all, archangels, Satan, angels, demons. How cool is it that an angel comes with this chain and binds Satan and throws him into the abyss? Jesus doesn't have to come. It doesn't take God to do that. An angel can do it. I like that. This is not a fair fight. We are on the winning side. Man. That is so cool to me. An angel can do this to him. I'm getting a little excited. I'm sorry. Four different names. Dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. Not four different personages, okay? Those are the four names we saw back in chapter 12 when we looked at kind of that panoramic history of the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Throughout history, the battle, those four names were used back then. To me, this is a way of saying, yeah, the one that's been fighting against us since the beginning of the church, he gonna get his. Call him what you want. Call him Satan, call him the serpent, call him the dragon, call him the devil. He gonna get his. This abyss where he's going. Chapter 9 called it the abode of demons. Chapter 11 showed us that it was the home of the beast. It's a temporary dwelling, folks. It's rental space. 
Because that's not where he or they are going to spend eternity. It's called hell. And we'll see that. He's shut up and sealed. Satan is shut up and sealed in this abyss so that his power to deceive the nations is halted for a period of time. This is not punishment to him or his final punishment. That's still coming. So he's thrown in there. Jesus comes, sets up his thousand-year reign, makes all things new, fixes the mess that man has made, reestablishes his rule, his kingdom, deals with Israel. Some other things are going to happen also. Then it says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I I saw the souls of those who were beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, not received the mark on their forehead. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The question is, are, are these the martyrs again? And is it those martyrs who have that special place in the heart of God? I think it very well could be. We met them in chapter 6. I think that's a part of what this is talking about. But you know, Jesus also promised in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight to his disciples, to the 12 apostles. He said, when, he comes, when Jesus comes and sits on his glorious throne, he said that they would sit on 12 thrones also and judge the nations. So uh, while we don't understand all this, I think a part of what happens during this thousand year reign is the martyrs and the apostles have a very special place, a special role in, in judging and making things right and making things new. Uh, folks, it's mystery, okay? I'm not ready to, to you know, die on that point or know that it's right. There's so much mystery in this. I, I just think that's... That's the best understanding I have of what's going on here. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these things, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. If I understand the big picture correctly, okay, the first resurrection includes the martyrs, those who hold that special place in the millennial kingdom. Um, Perhaps the martyrs being resurrected is a unique and special event. But I believe that this first resurrection is something for all believers. The only ones who won't be are those who are alive when Jesus comes again. Okay? We've looked at this already in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, actually, let's go to the, the next slide. But the whole passage is 13 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the first resurrection. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's what this is talking about in terms of the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Then the Bible says you are blessed and you are holy. Because you have a part in the first resurrection. Not the second one. And the second death has no power over you. Wait a minute, I thought we only died once. I thought the Bible was clear. It's appointed to man once to die. It, it, uh, excuse me, it does absolutely mean that. Absolutely means that. But the rest of the dead it's talking about here are the unsaved who won't be resurrected until the thousand-year reign is over. This second death is talking about how the, 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 the body dies But the scripture, and we'll see it next week, refers to this spiritual death that people experience. Everybody's going to be alive forever. One place or the other. No, I should go like this because it's not in heaven. It's on earth. One place or the other. Okay? The second death, though, is talking about those that we'll see next week that will be judged. Everybody has a first death unless you're alive when Jesus comes again. It's this second death. That's the one to be afraid of. It, it's what Jesus talked about. Remember in, in Matthew chapter 10, 28, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill your body, but are unable to kill your spirit. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's not the devil. That's God. That's the one we should fear. And that's what the second death is talking about. You're, you're not going to be, people are not going to be annihilated. They don't just evaporate and disappear into some unconscious state of nothingness. 
We'll see that real clearly next, next week. But that's what this second death is talking about, okay? All right, the next four verses make my head spin. So here we go. I'm going to read them and make a couple brief comments about them. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, scholars, commentators read this and they just are perplexed. Is this yet another reiteration of what chapter 19 verses 11 through 21 talked about when Jesus came again and that, that great supper where all the birds are going to eat all those people. Uh, is this Armageddon just talked about another time or, or is it different? Is it a, a separate yet another actual war? One final last ditch effort of the enemy. There's a lot of language overlap in this, okay? It sounds in so many ways like the same event. I think it is a unique event. But I want to say this to you. Don't get wrapped around the axle in terms of uh, the language or the time sequence. Hold all that loosely because the language does overlap and it seems like there's a lot of run together. You know, one of the questions is, now wait a minute, if Babylon's already destroyed, where do all these rebellious people come from? I don't know. It could be a reiteration. But the point is, this really isn't about when. Don't worry yourself about when. The point is the certainty of God's eternal judgment coming against the wicked. And so whether we can lay all these little ducks out in a row and know, is it the same thing? Is it another thing? Is it a new thing? Is it an old thing again? I don't know. But it's about the certainty of God's final victory We win! And the certainty of the enemy's final judgment. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, come out to deceive the nations. I think it's another final last-ditch attempt to overthrow the kingdom of God. You talk about a party crasher who who doesn't know when to stop. Somebody's got to tell him when to stop. (laughs) And oh, by the way, Jesus does. I I think one of the possible explanations that makes good sense to me, and um, a a scholar named George Eldon Ladd is the one that I first read who came up with this possible explanation. If this indeed is another attempt after the thousand years, it's not a reiteration or a repeat of what happened earlier in the story. His, His thought is this proves without any doubt that God's judgment and condemnation of sin and sinners is 100% right, 100% just. Now, God doesn't need to do that. He's God. But think about this for a minute. Even after Jesus reigns on this earth for a thousand years and comes back and fixes all the messes that sin and mankind have made of this world, okay, He heals and deals with sin and sickness and poverty and oppression and injustice and selfishness and greed. He fixes it all. People's hearts can still be deceived. And what that would prove would be this. The root cause of sin is not poverty. It's not not getting a fair shake. It's not bad conditions. It's not unfair disadvantage. The root cause of sin is what it's always been, rebellion and pride. And Jesus on the planet, face to face, is not enough to change some hearts that are that bent towards saying no to him and his kingdom. I don't know if he needs to do that, but I could sure see that that would, beyond a shadow of a doubt, prove his point. So I think this is another distinct final battle. The focal point, again, of Christ in this thousand years is Israel. I wish we had another month to talk about this and to go really study Ezekiel 38 through 48. Okay, that's a lie. I don't. It's, 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 
I, I, it, it does make my head spin. There's so much in there I don't get. But I do want you to see this. If you'll go and read that, you'll see such overlap in language. You'll see Ezekiel 38 through 48. Very specific prophecies and promises for Israel in the last days. The language, the subject matter is so similar to chapters 19 and 20. Especially these references to Gog and Magog. By the way, Gog and Magog were the names of Noah's, two of Noah's grandsons. And scholars say Gog represents Iran and Ethiopia and Libya who have been historic enemies of Israel since there was an Israel. And Magog represents Russia and the stands, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, all those other countries, the people from the north, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea region. They are going to be like the sand of the seashore. A vast, vast number are going to come against King Jesus and his saints. They come up on this broad plain. They surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Again, the broad plain is probably the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Armageddon. So if it's a separate battle, it happens in the same place. But it's coming against the beloved city. It's coming against Jerusalem. There are folks who think, oh no, it's not them. It's the church, the replacement theologians. And I, I don't believe that. I believe there's a specific plan for Israel. And the nation of Israel. That's why it talks about the beloved city. That's always Jerusalem in the scriptures, folks. Fire devoured them. More on fire in the weeks to come. Um, This is the ultimate global warming, folks. I'm telling you. And in two weeks, you're going to see what that's all about. And what's the intent beyond just destroying these who come against God. But again, there's no battle needed. All right. The devil, the beast, the false prophet tossed straight into the lake of fire. God made that for them, by the way. Matthew 25, 41 says God made hell for the devil and his angels, not for mankind. Now, there's going to be people go there by their own choice, but that's not why he made it. And what about us? That's where the news gets really, really good. There is great glory that awaits the church, beloved, the saints, beloved, you, beloved, And in two weeks, we're going to get a glimpse of of heaven and eternity and what that's going to look like and what that's going to be about. One of the things that should motivate you to not quit is to understand what's awaiting you on the other side of this whole mess. It's unbelievable. Well, no, it isn't. It's believable. It's phenomenal. I think that's a good word for it. And we're going to look at that. But next week, we're going to look at the great white throne judgment, the resurrection of the dead, And what goes on in those moments, okay? But for now, for us, for real life, real time, we need to stay strong and we need to stay focused. We need to choose to be overcomers. Don't quit. We win. Don't listen to what I was listening to earlier this week. Because it is hard. It, It stinks sometimes. Don't quit. Amen? So together, as a, as a, a declaration of our faith, let's, uh, Joshua, we're ready. Let's uh, come and, and sing this, this final chorus that we finished with earlier, because I think it's an amazing reminder of who our king is and what he's done for us. Amen? So let's stand. And also, when we're done, after I pray and dismiss you, there'll be opportunity for ministry up front, we've got some folks who will come up here and be happy to join you and pray with you for uh, anything you've got going on that you need and want prayer for. So let's stand. Good, you're standing. It's better if my guitar doesn't fall.
Bible says about you. Say this with me. Life is hard. God is good. I will not quit because we win. Because we win. Thank you, Lord. And so, Father, you've heard the word of our testimony. Let our own ears hear the words that we've just spoken. Come and fill your church today with courage and encouragement as we face the days ahead. Lord, help us continue to look up and look to you to straighten up and to look up because the harder it gets, the closer our redemption is drawing near. Jesus, those words came out of your mouth and we believe them. We trust you. We thank you for the saving grace that you've given and the continual abiding, empowering grace to overcome, to walk in victory, to advance your kingdom, to be your church, your bride in all of its glory. We are thankful today, Jesus, that we're a part of that. And we bless your holy name. Amen. God be with you. Have a great week. Hold on to the truth this week, okay?